Hello, everyone, and welcome to From Tip to Tail, a podcast dedicated to animal welfare. This podcast is sponsored by Cuddly. Cuddly is the only crowdfunding platform built specifically for animal welfare organizations worldwide. I'm Bridget. And I'm Sydney. We've spent years working with animal rescues and have seen such amazing innovation, strength, and heart. Having this personal connection with rescuers has made us more informed, grateful, and inspired. We hope by giving you an inside look, you will be too. Today, we're gonna be sitting down with Charlotte Maxwell, the director and founder of Cobble Small Animal Rescue, which is a registered charity and clinic working to take in orphaned and injured animals in Afghanistan and provide them with the care and life-saving treatment they need. It's not every day that we get to speak with a rescue that has been in direct path of war and destruction. What happened in Kabul and the human strife that continues to happen all around the world affects animals in more ways than one. That's why we were so honored to have Charlotte on to talk about her experiences over the past year and the realities that her rescue faces every day. If you like this episode, be sure to click that subscribe button to listen in on similar stories. Other than that, let's get started. Hey, Charlotte, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Really good. I feel like this has been a long-awaited episode, so I'm so excited that we're finally able to connect. So excited to recap on everything that you've been through over the past few months. And then just in general, I mean, highlight the work that you've been doing for so long. So it really feels almost like a little bit of a holiday, a celebration that we have you on, that we snatched you. (laughs) Well, thank you. It's been a long year. Yes, I have no doubt that it has. We'll get into so much, I think, in this episode. But to start things off, what started you off in animal welfare? Oh, God. I grew up with animals and I traveled overseas a lot in college and grad school and was always sort of um, trying to help out with fosters and stuff here and there. And did that here, probably starting in like 2015. I'd rescued a few animals here before, but it always gone through one of the larger British organizations here. And in 2018, we had too many house animals. And then we were helping a puppy rescue mission, which is an American-based organization that saves soldiers' dogs. So we were doing a lot of the transport for them. And it made sense to basically open a very small clinic so that we could have a licensed veterinarian and do vaccinations and do the checkups and get everybody healthy before they flew. We were really relatively small right up until COVID. When COVID hit, we stopped being able to transport out. And at the same time, a lot of the other rescues in the country closed their doors. So we were the only ones doing intake and it just, it ballooned. It was super insane. So we got more and more facilities. We got more and more staff. And after flights opened again, We did move out, I think, close to 320 animals, all in like commercial shipments or like me flying them over. And we got down to a pretty low animal population before last summer. And we moved out, I think it was 76 dogs in the one month before the CDC ban, which at that point we thought was like the worst thing in the world. And then August happened and we realized (laughs) it wasn't. And then come August... We tried to evacuate with all our animals and all of our staff, and we failed. I think everybody knows that part of the story. And we restarted. We regrouped and we restarted. And I think that we're coming back stronger. It's going to take a lot of time. We've got a whole new set of 
veterinarians and upper management staff. So we're doing a ton of training. We've got a lot of foreign vets coming in to do training. And, you know, we're doing facility sort of reduxes because a lot of our facilities were were looted and damaged um, last August. But we're just continuing to work. And then we kind of thought that the flight in January would be this giant release for us. And by the time it happened, we'd had so many other things happen that after that flight left, we still had 150 animals. And right now we have 250. So we're still working just as hard. Wow. I can't believe that was a year ago. I mean, I said a couple, I said, these last couple of months have been a little hard for you. Clearly my timing is so off. I don't know if it has, what it has to do with today's world. I'm sure it feels like a year for you. It feels like just a few months ago for us. What insane developments. So for anyone who is still getting acquainted with you, are you grew up and uh, located consistently in Kabul? No, I'm from Tennessee. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I'm from Tennessee. I came to Kabul about 12 years ago when I started doing research here for uh, my graduate degree and then ended up finishing that and leaving academia and doing some development work here and doing a lot of research. Then uh, opened the animal rescue as a side project that obviously got a little out of hand and has become the main thing. So clearly you've developed this heart for this location that you're not from at all. That's so interesting. What is it about the area and the people that really stuck with you? It's changed a lot in the last decade, obviously. It was a bit like the Wild West when I first came here, but it's maybe a little bit changed now, but it used to be one of the most dynamic places. There were people from every country, everything you could possibly do. And there was, there was always this sort of dynamism and anything could happen that day. Like, yes, it's been on and off dangerous in different ways, but the chances of like having an idea in the morning and making it happen in the evening, like you can do that. There's space for movement in a way. And you have to be active in everything you do. You can't just be passive. There's no social support systems here, right? Which is a terrible thing about the country, but it also means that you have to pick yourself up by the bootstraps and it can be a kind of thrilling way to live as well as exhausting. Absolutely. I I can only imagine. And like you were saying, obviously there has been a lot of changes that you've seen in the past decade or so that you've been there, but I'm curious compared to when you first arrived for animals, have you seen a shift or a change since COVID or, or even since August? Well, there's been a slow change in animal treatment, at least that I've seen over the past decade. More groups work on education and there's a bit more kindness. There's a bit more awareness. We do see a lot more people with pets. We do see a lot more people with pets that they really care about. Both COVID and we're providing, we're providing dog and cat food for a lot of people. Like, I mean, I'd rather them stay at their homes than come to us. We're doing medical care and vaccinations for free for everybody. It's a bit like in the U.S. where everybody's returning their pets once they're back to work, except here it's nobody has work. The economy is tanking. There's a massive humanitarian crisis. So animal welfare is put on the back burner. Yeah, like it's more, it's not that people don't want their animals. It's just that they physically cannot care for them right now because of what's happening. Yeah, and a lot of people are, are moving. Um, and a lot of people have fled the country. So we've taken in a lot of those animals. 
and actually got a ton of them in January, but uh, we still have more, still have quite a few more. Well, in, in Kabul, do you have homes where you have the animals or do you ha- are you more foster based? We don't have a single foster here. I wish we did. We have 13 facilities. They're all set up in these big old Afghan houses. All Afghan houses have sort of um, compound walls around them. So they all have like walled yards. And that's where all of, all of our animals are. We have a couple sheep that are living on the outskirts with one of our staff's family members. <laughs> and we have three peacocks that are currently living in an embassy because they're kind of terrible to be around dogs because they make really, really loud noises that make everybody <laughs> We've got, I think, 13 facilities right now um, and close to 90 staff members. Wow. How many animals would you say are in each of those facilities right now? Oh, it totally depends. Some are bigger, some are smaller. But we've got a total of about 250 animals right now. I think it's around 180 dogs, 60 cats. Well, 185, 65, something like that. That's incredible. It's so astounding. And it's so astounding for me to think of your journey in general. I mean, I don't like to stereotype, but we've seen that a lot of Southern states have a really hard time with animal welfare. And for you to move from Tennessee over (laughs) to somewhere that is by all means, probably far more impacted and has a totally different idea of what animals uses and what their place is within society. I think it's such an interesting journey that you've made. If you don't mind me asking, what was your context of academia that you were in? I have a PhD in classical archaeology. So I studied pottery from around 600 BCE to 500 CE in northern Afghanistan, looked at cultural and economic exchange. Oh my God, I love that. Love that so much. That's what I am. That's what I majored in, in, in classical history and archaeology. Oh, really? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. There's a sign to everyone. If you're looking to get into animal welfare, archaeology somehow. (laughs) I know so much has happened over the past year, and you've done a wonderful job of highlighting things. I know it's hard to say day to day how things are developing, but how do you see the next few months through the end of the year going for you and for the society that you're kind of trying to function in? That's a great question. I think it's one that we we grapple with every day. Just yesterday, we moved two animals out, two dogs by commercial flight. And they're on their way to Canada to uh, No Dogs Left Behind in Toronto. That's the first commercial animal transport we've done since July of last year. It's incredibly expensive. It took months of planning and redoing paperwork and redoing like flight routes. And it's not a streamlined process yet but it does open a door for us. So we're going to work really hard on moving out quite a few of our animals because we have, we have animals that would not survive on the street. We have a ton of um, disabled animals. We have a ton of dogs and cats that were brought to us as orphans. They cannot be released. So we do want to do that. We're also working on training our new veterinary staff and making sure that we've, that we've got first grade veterinarians in country all the time. We're starting a partnership with Mayhew International, which does the big spay-neuter clinics here. They're phenomenal. And they're going to be training two of our vets at a time for, I think it's like two-month periods in spay-neuter surgeries. We do not see ourselves 
primarily functioning as a spay neuter clinic because at this point we're the only emergency clinic in the country. But what we would like to eventually make that an arm of what we do, probably focusing on cats as most of it here focuses on dogs, but that's something sort of far in the future. We work with the working dogs here. So we take care of all the working dogs that the Taliban use to secure the the various airports in the country. That's been an important relationship to build. And it took time. It took getting an OFAC license so that we can legally operate here because we're not a humanitarian organization. So we didn't fall under the Treasury Department's exemption. You know, this country doesn't have diplomatic relations with pretty much anyone right now. So otherwise, it's really difficult to work here. So, you know, it's continuing to to keep our licensing up and work hard on um, training our staff, getting our buildings in better states. We just built a a new surgical suite and we're reduxing a lot of our facilities. Basically, it's like we're fully tiling everything so that it's much easier to clean. Pretty soon, we're going to try our damnedest to get some diagnostic equipment in because that's... um, it's just sorely lacking here, right? There are two x-ray clinics in town. Outside of that, there's nothing. There's no blood chemistry. There's, there's no labs. There's nothing. So that would be a huge boon for us. And we hope to be making more partnerships with European and Canadian organizations so that we can move dogs there, probably instead of to the US, because the CDC rules are still pretty prohibitive. I'm hoping that over the next couple months, those become clearer because they did change everything again about a month ago. But I think people are still juggling around trying to figure out what that process is. So adoption to the U.S. for dogs, at least, is still quite difficult. And then we're, uh, we're just trying to get ourselves to the point where we're not constantly trying to catch up, right? So we're, we're trying to get a website made, trying to get uh, fundraising teams put together. Because right now, we're dealing pretty much exclusively with private donations. We're working on trying to get more supplies in, seeing if we can get donated supplies and then donated plane space and then wrestling with customs here, which is never easy. Those are a few of the goals. Sounds like you guys are doing so much, just so much, you know, from transports to training staff to working on all those things. I'm and just given the pattern I think that we've been seeing with a lot of organizations of like burnout and exhaustion just over the past year. And especially for you, just with everything that's been going on with, you know, the world and, and specifically Kabul, I'm, I'm wondering how you and your team are doing just kind of going through all of these motions and how you guys are managing it and dealing with it. Oh yeah. We're totally burnt out. Burnout happened a few months into COVID. I think it has lightened the load a lot that we got out close to 300 animals in January. But the, the workload here is immense. Our staff work really, really hard. And I think part of the motivating force is that almost anywhere else on earth, if you don't do it, you might be able to find somebody else who will. Here, that's not the case. We do go to, uh, to Mayhew International for some emergency surgeries, as we did uh, about four days ago. But in terms of like, you know, if somebody has a sick animal at two in the morning here, there's nobody else in this country who will deal with it. So it does motivate you. It feels uh, at times like there's not, there's not a choice at all. We're definitely operating in burnout. Even how you're referring to, like you're, you're constantly trying to catch up. It's so 
amazing. I think that that doesn't mean that you are just trying to keep the status quo. You are building these surgical suites and you're doing all these amazing endeavors that I think a lot of rescues, they have to really ramp up and really consider and do all these things. And for you, I think it's act first, think it through later. (laughs) Yeah, I think think our board would agree and sometimes shout at me for that. Part of the reason that that we do things like uh, ramp up the surgical suite, like tile everything, is it means that when we do get a case of like a puppy with parvo, it makes it easier to clean. It makes it easier to treat. It means that it doesn't spread. The better facilities are, the less we have to deal with simple problems of hygiene, with problems of where where to put dogs, how to how to make sure that they're safe. So in some ways, all of that extra work that we're putting towards it, in the end, the end goal is that it does save us from drowning. It does make life a lot easier to have a real surgical suite instead of, you know, half the time operating on a floor with cell phone lights, which is what we did in, you know, after the Taliban took over in September, that's where we were at. So it should make life easier, but it takes a real push to get there. Yeah. It takes you back to, I think I heard that you initially with the CDC ban, when you were trying to get a lot of the animals over, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were having to transport animals to get them medical care so that they could qualify to then be transported somewhere else, right? When the CDC ban started, it was announced on June 14th, 2021, and it went into effect July 15th. At that point, we moved all of the dogs that we had that were fully vaccinated. And so everything that was legally allowed that we could illegally move at that time, we did. The animals that went to Canada We had to then do CDC exemption permits for some of them. Some of them have gone through. The rest of them are waiting the six-month mandatory wait. And it's not a quarantine. It's simply the U.S. now demands that they be in a quote-unquote rabies-free or low-risk rabies country for six months before entering the U.S. That's what we're doing now. There are a couple of times that we've tried to move animals out for medical treatment. So my little puppy, Dylan, who we lost about three months ago, he had some severe neurological problems. He'd been kicked as a baby. And we tried really, really hard to move him to Dubai because we would have needed an MRI and neurosurgeons to fix him. And we couldn't get him there. He got sick before we could get him there. But that's something that, you know, we would always try and do. There's some animals that that need like intense orthopedic care that is simply not possible here. Different eye surgeries, like corrections, for broken limbs, stuff like that. So we always do try, like we prioritize those animals and we try to get them out. I mean, it is so amazing because I think we talk with rescuers every day, right? And we see how hard just animal welfare is just on its own in a perfect world. Not that any perfect world exists, but even if it did, it's so hard dealing with these cases. And then to compound that with so much that you have around you, It really is astounding. I'm wondering for a lot of us who don't understand a lot of the culture that you're you're dealing with or the attitudes around animals, what are the typical cases that you're seeing come in to your organization? Obviously, it sounds like you're packed with animals right now. Are they typically strays? Are they typically owner surrender? And what state are they typically in? We're dealing almost exclusively with strays, except for the animals that owners bring in, they want us to transport out to meet them or their families. 
it's almost all stray animals. We do take care of the working dogs. That's a sort of different thing. I think most of our injured animals, almost all of them, are looking at car accidents. There's 100,000 street dogs, probably the same number of street cats, and it's a city of 5 million people. So we're looking at a ton of car accidents. It's not purposeful, but it's constant. And a lot of those are, they are simple euthanasia cases, right? Like a dog came in last week with part of its spine coming out of its back. There is no question there. It's inhumane to try to keep an animal like that alive. That's a big one. We also, we get a lot of orphaned animals. And then we see the, the typical like parvo, distemper, all of these diseases that are in large stray populations. We see TVT, which is transmissible venereal tumors. I had never heard of it till I came here. And it's a transmissible cancer. It's actually very treatable. So we give, we do chemotherapy treatments. That's a pretty common one. And we get a lot of orphans. We can't save them all. We do see some animal abuse. It's actually mostly children, children throwing rocks at them or children cutting off their ears. It's, um, can't quite explain why it happens, except that when you grow up in violence, it sort of can come out like that. We don't see as much of the just straight up sadism as you're going to see like in some parts of the Middle East or in China. I mean, right now the Yulan meat festival is going on. We don't see that here or very rarely, very rarely. We, we do sometimes and we don't publicize it because I don't want that in my head. So I'm not going to put it in somebody else's. It just makes your life objectively worse. But that's, that's actually pretty rare here. And I love that you refer to like all this work that you're doing with these working dogs. I mean, it sounds like it goes back to your mission um, originally where you were working with these military dogs um, and trying to work to help them. It really is. I mean, not that any animal is more worthy, but I do love that you're meeting these people who rely on these animals and, and trying to work with them and help them in whatever way they need. It's so uh, puppy rescue mission worked with the dogs that soldiers adopted on bases that maybe they weren't supposed to adopt. So they were not military working dogs. The military takes incredible care of its working dogs. Like the U S military does the dogs that, that we take care of. Many of those uh, originally belonged to contractors here. So security contract companies, and some of them tried in every way possible to get their animals out. Some abandoned them. The Taliban, when they took over and they took over the airport, took a lot of these and have been using them and actually have a lot of the same staff that were working with the contractors before. So there's some continuity. So we're, we're trying to help them because our mission is to help animals in this country, regardless of who their owner is. So we, we don't do any training. Um, we're not allowed to do any training. We're allowed to teach animal husbandry and sort of good animal welfare practices to the handlers. Um, and we do that and we make sure that their kennels are warm in the winter and cool in the summer. We make sure that they're fed, that they're given medical treatment. To us, it, it doesn't matter who is claiming ownership over them right now. They need care just as much as anybody else. I mean, that's such a wonderful heart. I love that so much. Do you have any personal pets or do you have 250 <laughs> personal like animals? Oh, there's a rotating cast of personal pets and I love them so much that I, that I work on rehoming them. My dog Bia is in Canada. I've got Terrence who's currently sleeping on my carpet and 
think peeing on my house plants. He's here now. And I don't know that he'll ever go anywhere. He's, he's an old dog. He's totally happy here. He's super lazy. He's like a hundred pounds. So it would be really hard to ship him. And he's, he's perfectly content sleeping about 90% of the day. I do have my own personal pets, but when it's possible, I do send them out to a more resource laden country so that they can have fuller lives and go to dog parks and eat really good quality food. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's so wonderful. Were there any stories about these animals that you kind of carry with you when you're doing this work that is obviously, I mean, it has so many rules, regulations, so many like invisible um, restrictions, I think to it. Were there any animal rescue stories that just makes your heart shine? (laughs) Everything that happened after the airport in August, it was hard, right? It was really hard, but our staff, they came through and we pulled animals out of there and we got them healthy again. There's a lot that, that goes on behind the scenes, taking malnourished dogs and the slow, slow process of getting them healthy again, right? You can't just feed them as much as you want right away. Otherwise they get something called refeeding syndrome. So if you get a truly emaciated dog, you're looking at like six to eight tiny, tiny meals every day, right? And then gradually going up like a kibble each, right? So it's hard to do, but you see them, you see them sort of blossom again. That's sort of more general, right? I mean, if you're looking for a specific animal, it's harder because you get, you get a lot of the cases that you want to turn out right. And they don't. I lose a lot of the things that I love. And there's some cold comfort in the fact that they had short periods where they were loved and they were, they were warm and safe. But it's also, it's just, it's sort of constantly heartbreaking. And I think anybody in animal rescue would, would say the same. There's an immense amount of compassion fatigue. It is incredible. I think even that dedication for having that many animals and that level of dedication where you are feeding small amounts more kibble every so often to slowly make sure that animal is thriving uh, ultimately that's it's really amazing cuz i think when you hear about a mass amount of animals that are in a rescue you almost picture like <laughs> a big dog bowl that's like good luck everyone <laughs> you're all in this safe space kind of and i'm going to make sure you have everything but it's kind of a dog eat dog <laughs> shelter situation. Sometimes it feels that way with my fosters in my home. I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to lay out this food and back up because you're all <laughs> going for it so hard. But even that gentle and concentrated effort really is, I think, something that a lot of people don't understand and is so in- impactful and incredible. We have some really incredible staff some of whom we've had for years. They're not veterinarians. They don't have medical training, but they're the ones that will patiently sit there and simply be with an animal or patiently syringe feed puppies and stuff, right? There's a few of them that are, they're worth their weight in gold, you know? And that's, I don't think it's something that can be taught. That's sort of quiet compassion. And so when we find people like that, it's, it's always a blessing. Absolutely. I see that just from the photos that you post. (laughs) It's really amazing. I do want to just make space for you to say, is there anything that you would want to relay to people 
whether they be in the United States, in Europe, outside of, of your region, that you want to relay saying, this is the reality of, of this situation? That's a tough one. Since we were in the limelight last August, being in, in like a spotlight brings out the crazies. So we had some serious crazies last year, right? There were people who like either thought that I was dead or thought that I was like on a beach having stolen money and like drinking pina coladas or like just amazing stuff, right? There's like random people that have like started Facebook pages over us. I think one of them was accused me of either drug smuggling or child sex trafficking, right? So it's, it's pretty wack- wacky stuff. We get that harassment. We had um, some just outright defamation by uh, the SPCA International, which is a you know multi-million dollar international organization. And um, we're not that big. So we don't have the PR team to fight that. I am the PR team. We've had intense harassment in Canada from a, a bunch of the former volunteers that work there. And they're harassing the people that are currently helping the last few animals at the shelter that we rented in Canada. We get behind the scenes that, that we don't really talk about. We get hit constantly. It's bruising, right? We got off of Twitter last year because Twitter is, it was crazy. Like Twitter was like a, a, a safe space for all crazy people to say mean things. And I honestly don't think that most people would say those things face to face, but like that anonymity just gives it a bit of power. That's done some damage to us. It really has. Um, I think it's made people reticent about donating. And there's a lot of reasons that donations have flagged, right? And a big one is also the war in Ukraine. Every organization working there does need donations. There's no comparison for that, for the sort of tragedy that's happening right there, like on an hourly basis. Now, all of that said, right now, we're the only ones that are fully operational here. And we need continued help. And it is expensive. There are very few supply lines, right? Anything that we bring in through customs, it's enormously expensive. Medicines, this stuff is, it's really pricey. But one thing that I've sort of felt from the beginning and try and enact every day is that we don't treat street dogs like street dogs. I don't want to skimp on their care. I don't want them to, to have anything but full lives. And it does take consistent assistance to do this. So right now we're, uh, we're setting up a wholly volunteer-based uh, fundraising team to help us do a lot of grant writing. And I'm not sure what we're eligible for because we are working here in Afghanistan, which, uh, which causes some problems. And it's hard because people can't mail us any goods because there's no postal system here. I'm hoping that some of this does get a little easier. But I think in general, despite any of the negativity, like we're still here, we're not going away, but it always has been a group effort, right? So like that plane, that plane was paid for entirely with individual donations that averaged out to below $60. And that paid for a cargo plane to fly across the world. So the power of tiny donations, the power of telling your friends, the power of trying to find a foster for one cat, for one dog. It makes an enormous difference. And it's the difference that that we depend on. Uh, I think everything you said is just so important. So thank you again so much for coming on with us, um, for taking some time out of your day. I know it is late evening for you. I know you said you, you work basically 24 seven. 
we don't want to take you away from the animals any more than we have. Thank you so much for taking this time with us. Thanks for reaching out and uh, hearing about our organization. We've said we were astounded by so many animal rescues in the past, but when it comes to Cobble's male animal rescue, we're just so speechless. The work that Charlotte and her team are doing is just incredible, knowing that they are the only resource for an entire community. It's incredible to see that their persistence is having such a big impact on their entire location, all the way into where the animals are being transported in Canada, Europe, and other locations. It's amazing. And if you want to learn more about Cobble's Small Animal Rescue, you can check our show notes or our blog. And as always, remember to rate, like, and subscribe to this podcast. And be sure to follow Cuddly on all social media accounts at We Love Cuddly. That's C-U-D-D-L-Y. Thanks, guys.